Well, one of the things that you do during church membership is you take a person's testimony in the hope that people have a valid testimony of conversion. And when we think about conversion, for me, one of the things that is probably most important is for me to really figure out if this person I'm dealing with, do they have an understanding of the doctrine of sin? Do they understand what sin is? Do they understand that they're guilty of sin or they were guilty of sin uh, in terms of their need for salvation? And when I don't see that, when I don't see that there is a real knowledge of sin, a, a, a concern for sin, it, it, that is a concern for me. And so, you know, we're, we're discussing today that very topic. We are back talking about Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Christian Life, and we are covering chapter five today on the conviction of sin. And so this brings up a lot of questions in terms of our understanding of sin and whether or not we have a biblical understanding of sin, particularly the way that conviction of sin works. And so, guys, as we think about conviction of sin, wouldn't you guys resonate? Because that's when I read this chapter, that's what stood out to me is that it is so important for people to have a conviction of sin. And I don't know if you guys ever sat with folks during uh, membership or something like that, but wouldn't you agree if you don't hear people talking about sin as disturbing, as alarming to them, it's a cause for concern for you as you're talking to them. So I want to hear your guys' thoughts for that. But first, let me just welcome you guys. Uh, again, Kevin Moore, Mike Tiemann, both pastors. Mike's in uh, Anaheim Hills, California. And uh, Kevin is here in Sherman, Texas. Guys, welcome back. Great to see you guys again, be with you guys again. Give me your thoughts on that opening thought that I just uh, that I just kind of laid out there in terms of the importance of the conviction of sin. Yeah, hey, Emilio, it's good to be back with you, Kevin. We we actually got to hang out with each other, you know, what, last week and see each other face-to-face. Yeah. Uh, you, you made your way out to California and then quickly went back to, to Texas. I mean, that was that was fast. Uh, but, you know, opening this chapter, I was like, oh, okay, here we go. I mean, what a, what a counter-cultural chapter this is, you know, to our culture, pastorally speaking. You know, this is not a, you know, a very popular Sunday morning topic of, of conviction of sin. Um, it's not something I think people talk about a lot, but as, as Emilio, you pointed out, this is crucial to a Christian's walk, a Christian's confirmation of, of salvation. If you're not getting convicted by the Holy spirit, that's a problem. That's a concern pastorally. I'm, I'm worrying about your, your soul, uh, your salvation, all of those, all of those things kind of kind of come into come into play there for me pastorally, especially if somebody's living in sin and not even regarding it as important or brushing it off. Yeah, I would agree with that, Mike. I mean, when you talk about God regenerating individuals, um, and as we hear their testimony as well, we want to hear the conviction of sin. Um, the reality is, is you want to know why why do people need to be saved? I mean, if the reality is, is if you don't know that God is holy and that you've sinned against him, then God's wrath abides on you if you do not repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if somebody comes in and let's say you're going through a membership interview or whatever it may be, and you're talking to them and it's like, well, when did you become a Christian? Um, and I've had this happen before where people said, um, I just, I, you know, I grew up and, and I believe that you're trying to press in and you're saying, Hey, what's the character and the nature of God? You know, he's holy, he's righteous. You know, Romans 3, 23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and seeing that their need for Christ, but you have to have a conviction of sin to see your need for Christ. And if that's absent, like you said, I mean, there is a cause for concern. Yeah, no, absolutely. For sure. I was actually thinking of this in the context, uh, uh, about a year or so ago, I had somebody come up that really mad after a sermon I had taught and mad at me. And he, you know, I just didn't like that sermon. And what you said, I thought was, you know, and, and he kind of went on. And of course, I'm broken because I'm like, I'm, so, you know, go to my wife, you know, Aaron, did I, did I misspeak? Was I too harsh? Like what happened? And, you know, it turns out it's like, hey, actually, this individual's being convicted 
of of sin. The word of God hit them, and I think in in the the Christian American Christian culture that is such a foreign kind of reality. You know, oftentimes you hear wishy washy sermons, and 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 they're you're going to church, and and pastor, your job is to just kind of make me feel good. So when I go out the door, I'm just I got some wind in my sails to take me through the next week, so that I don't like totally go off the rails, but. You know, we actually sit and talk. And I, I think Sinclair Ferguson, I, I, I really appreciated how he, he started this whole conversation on who is the author of, the, of conviction. And he brings out in, in John chapter 16, and, and kind of the, the primary passage of this chapter, John chapter 16, verse 8, and this is, this is Jesus' last words to his disciples. He just washed their feet, upper room discourse. This is it. And he's spending a huge amount of his time talking about uh, the Holy Spirit, this, this other helper that once Jesus ascends, once he, he goes, he's going to send. And in verse 8, he says, when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. And then verse 9, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, but just for context and to set the stage, he says, concerning sins, because they do not believe in me. Verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is, is judged. And I thought, what a brilliant place for, for Sinclair Ferguson to start in, especially in our cultural context of like, hold on, conviction of sin is, is God wrought, right? Our natural self, we're not going to care, right? You know, our natural self is bent towards, towards rebellion and sin. But when, when conviction is there, there's evidence and it's brought about and produced by the, the Holy Spirit. So mm-hmm. kind of in kicking off and starting the conversation in that, uh, that light, talking about conviction of sin, Kevin, um, Sinclair Ferguson says men don't believe because they are sinners, right? What, what is... What, what's the what's kind of that full weight of what what Sinclair is is talking about there? Yeah, I mean, you know, we did a previous episode. We talked about total depravity. That man is dead in their trespasses and sin, and they are unable to choose God, and so they don't believe because they're they're born dead. And unless it's a sovereign regenerating work of the the Holy Spirit, you know, as John chapter three says, you know, Jesus says you must be born again. And it's, it's the spirit of God doing that. Then, um, men will not believe. And I love what, uh, Sinclair Ferguson says actually right after the sentence that you just talked about, Mike, he said this, he said the apex of their sin is unbelief in the face of the full light of divine revelation. And so, um, we know that again, man is unable to choose God and, and they don't believe and they won't believe no man will believe unless God sovereignly regenerates them. Yeah, amen. I, I, I think it's so important to cast everything in light of what Ferguson is saying here, uh, the work of the Spirit, because it reminds us, you know, of the monergistic nature of our salvation, right? I mean, God has to really move and act, and God has to uh, be obviously sovereign in every stage of salvation, and, and that's absolutely right. And uh, I, I just love the way that Sinclair Ferguson compares that all to uh, this idea of being waken, woken up out of a dream, right? I think we've all kind of been there. We've all kind of felt that disturbance when, you know, mm. you're deep in sleep and you hear some noise and someone's messing around or calling out to you. And you, you're right at that stage where you're just like, you don't want to wake up, but you hear the noise and you're, you know you got to wake up. And nobody likes that sensation at first, but then you are fully awake. You know, and I think that's that's a great analogy for conversion and how the spirit begins to awaken us. So I thought that was a really good good metaphor. It's a, it's a, I know for Sinclair he was talking about how this is it, there's a disturbance, and he compared it that there's there's an there's an element of disturbance, and that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's yeah. disturbing people and alarming people uh, in their sin when he wakes them up, and that's what I was talking about at the beginning in terms of when we don't see that disturbance, when we don't see trouble, right? And people talk about their sin, or they talk about their conversion, or they're talking about how they became Christians in terms of, well, I was raised Christian, I was raised in the church, and 
you know, I've kind of always been around, you know, uh, Christian things. Unless somewhere in there people, you know, come to the reality that they were not in a good place with the Lord, and then they were, you know, alerted to that. They were awakened sinners, as the Puritans would say. Uh, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, has the work of the Spirit really happened? But I know he'll talk about that, but uh, that's those are all good points. You know, you, you think of Living Waters, you think of Ray Comfort, and just the fact of the matter is, it's just like, it's not, hey, Jesus loves you. Well, okay, like, let's explain that. And, you know, obviously uses the illustration of going to the doctor and it's like, hey, we'll take this potion. Well, okay, the guy's not going to take the potion or he's not going to take the medicine, but it's like, hey, unless you take this, you're going to die in 24 hours. Then he gladly receives the medicine. And in the same way, we see how we've broken God's law, how we've sinned against him. And then that forces us and that, and we run to the Christ and we run to the savior. And again, just, and that's what part of that is, is that conviction of sin, knowing that we've sinned against the Holy God. And then we just look at the cross and we're just in amazement at what Christ has done. Yeah. I'm reminded of uh, Spurgeon's quote, and I'm going to take it out of context a little bit, but he says something along the lines of, I've learned to kiss the wave of adversity that throws me against the rock mm. of ages. Mm. You know, those those things in our life that cast us upon the rock of Christ, God, right? In in taking that quote out of context, but applying it here is is the conviction of sin. Yes, it brought us... You know, I love that illustration of of we were were dead in our sins and trespasses. God invaded us by the Holy Spirit, awakened us, regenerated us, opened our eyes, conviction, faith, belief, all that's all that took place. Now, post salvation, that doesn't stop. Right? We as Christians, we live a life of of being convicted on the daily of our sins. You know, we, we, we're, we're too harsh with our kids. We say something insensitive to our wife. There's a, there's a conscious there that gets, gets Mm. irritated. You know, we violated the, 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 the will of God. We've, we've, we've violated the Holy Spirit's speaking to us in that sense of convicting us um, of, of our sins. And that's something we need to learn to embrace as beautiful and good. And even pastorally, I was thinking the, in the context of accountability as well, you know, you guys see me doing something sinful, that exhortation of repentance is, is such a good thing, right? Brother to brother, and the Holy Spirit takes that, uses that. That that this is such a beautiful thing to be in, be embraced. And and so, yeah. Emilio, going through John chapter sixteen, and I actually taught this to a group of high schoolers a couple months ago. And at at, at first read, it's kind of a string of thoughts that that's hard to comprehend. Right? He says concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment concerning sin, and then he puts these ideas, linking these ideas concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this judge, or sorry, the ruler of this world is judged. Can you kind of unpack that for us a little bit? What what in the world is Jesus saying here? Yeah, well, what a tremendous passage of Scripture for sure, but obviously, I mean, this is Christ like you mentioned earlier, talking to his disciples just prior to the cross, just prior to his crucifixion and and uh, his departure from the world. Uh, and of course, he's promising that he's not going to leave them as orphans. And so the Spirit really is coming in with a twofold ministry, so to speak. He's coming in on the one hand to comfort the people of God, to comfort the disciples, to make sure that they understand that the presence of God will be with them regardless of his physical presence being, or the presence of, of the Lord Jesus will be, regardless of his physical presence being gone, the spirit indwelling them makes, makes them know for certain that he will continue to be with them so that they are not orphans in this world, but he will help them in many ways. He'll help them by disclosing the truth of who Christ is. So in a sense, the spirit becomes an extension of the work of Christ uh, in this world. And that really is kind of where the launching pad is there in verse 8, where uh, Jesus then feels the need to amplify what is the overall work of the Spirit in the world, not just to comfort believers, but when he sends the Spirit, the Helper, 
it, it's almost as if the Spirit is going to be that attending helper to the mission of the church. So in the context of the evangelization and the missionary enterprise of the apostolic church, we know that the Holy Spirit attends us because he attends the preaching of the gospel. And when the Spirit moves in this world, he is moving primarily as it concerns this message of driving home the message of the gospel to people by convicting them of their sin. And so it is, uh, it's interesting, right? Because Jesus is leaving the world, and so no longer will we see messianic signs. No longer is the Messiah going to be there to actually lead his uh, uh, disciples and his apostles and his church physically. And so the, the Spirit now, in a sense, takes over, and not necessarily by authenticating more signs and wonders and things like that, but really by driving home the message of the gospel and all the way home to the heart of man as he convicts people of their sin. And so I know there's a threefold division that that uh, this passage, kind of very neat, neatly packaged away, right? But it's it's obviously a conviction of sin, a conviction of righteousness, and a conviction of judgment, as Sinclair Ferguson points out in his book here. Uh, but but just that, it's it's important for us to understand that when we preach the gospel to people, if a person falls under any conviction whatsoever, it's important for us, the church, to know that it is the work of the Spirit to do that. We don't have to try to aid the Spirit to do that. <laughs> we have to trust the Spirit to do that. Yeah, amen. And, and in many ways, you think about that, right? But you think about how wrong it is for us to try to do any sort of um, emotional, uh, sort of psychological manipulation on people to try to work up some kind of response when we have right here in Scripture a promise that it's it's the Spirit's work to do this, uh, to to drive home the message of sin by bringing that conviction uh, of sin. And why does He convict them? Well, because they don't believe in Christ. I mean, that's the that's the main thing. They they don't have saving faith in Christ. And uh, it's just, it's amazing. So I don't know, you know, the, each one of these little propositions, these verses, verse 9, 10, and 11, is kind of its own rich little study. You can just do a whole exposition on what does it mean for the Spirit to convict because they don't believe in Him. I mean, it really does show you uh, that man's greatest dilemma, man's greatest need in the world is not circumstantial, it is not emotional, it's not psychological, it's not felt needs. They don't need better finances, they don't need a better version of themselves. They need Christ, and that's what the Spirit works to do, is to illuminate a person's need for Christ. And so I don't know if you wanted me to do, uh, to move on to all of these individual points, but those are just some of my just some of my sentiments. The, the, the Spirit is, in a sense, the helper of the church to drive home the message of the gospel. Yeah, I think we should camp out, you know, a few minutes on, on yeah. each one of them. Kevin, do you have anything you want to want to add on conviction of sin? Yeah, I would uh, I would say, and he just even talks about the first point is is that too, as I was just bounce off that question and just, you know, the first uh, question that Sinclair Ferguson asks is, is conviction necessary? And the answer is yes, but I love, but this is what I love what Sinclair Ferguson did. It was, the question is, is how deep, you know what I'm saying? Like in terms of like, some men may feel a deeper conviction and some may feel gentler. And he kind of explained that. And so let me read some of the stories from this because I thought this was phenomenal and how, and I thought he just did a great job pastorally on this and helping people understand. Uh, he uses an example from, uh, from Spurgeon which uh, he says this, he said, among the many thousands of souls who have been brought to know the Lord under my instrumentality, I have often noticed that a considerable proportion of these and of the best members of our church too were one to the Savior, not by legal terrors, but by gentler means. I asked an excellent young woman, what was the first thought that set you really seeking the Savior? Oh, sir, she replied, it was Christ's lovely character that first made me long to be his disciple. I saw how kind, how good, how disinterested, how self-sacrificing self he was, 
And that made me feel how different I was. Now, that's what we're talking about, a conviction of sin right there, right? That, that Christ is different. She says, I thought, oh, I am not like Jesus. And that sent me to my room and I began to pray. And so I came to trust him. Mm-hmm. And Again, you know, Ferguson goes on. He says, Spurgeon's words are significant because they, they, they show that even when God uses gentler means to bring us to Christ, there is always, always some sense of the conviction of sin. And I thought that was phenomenal because I think that's a question because, you know, oftentimes in, um, you know, you hear this out, Mike, you know this too, just with, uh, with youth ministry and Emilio, obviously you've been, uh, in ministry for, for decades as well. And, and oftentimes, you know, what happens is the church can highlight the individual who was 44, who was strung out on drugs, just this crazy, like lifestyle. And they said, man, I, I knew I was a sinner and then Christ saved me. Right. And then, but obviously, what do you do when you deal with the individual who was four years old, who was sitting on the edge of their parents' bed, who who comes to know the Lord? I mean, we all have young kids, and the reality of the situation is, um, you know, we pray that God regenerates them at a young age, but that's going to look different, but there's going to be a conviction of sin there. But I think we have to help people understand too, is your testimony at four years old on the edge of your parents' bed is just as radical as that 44-year-old. Guess what? You were dead. He was dead. It was a sovereign work of God. And so I think just, I love, again, just how Ferguson handled that pastorally, you know, and he even had a quote from John Owen that I'm going to read to as well. It says, God is pleased to exercise a prerogative and sovereignty in this whole matter and deals with the souls of men in unspeakable variety. Some he leads by the gates of death and hell unto rest in his love and the pass of others he makes plain and easy unto them. But I think there's that that common thread that you know you guys have talked about and we've talked about too is that is that conviction of sin. And whether God does that in a, in a gentler way or um as Owen said it leads him by the gates of hell, there's one thing that that is there and that is a conviction of sin. So conviction of sin is necessary. Yeah. You guys got any yeah. thoughts on that? I well, mean, obviously, before Mike, we move on. You know, maybe we can handle the next question there. But do you guys have any any thoughts you want to bounce off that? Well, I would just you know I would just add to this uh, this category here of conviction of righteousness because I know Mike, um, mm. you know, there's so much we can say on each one of these points. But on conviction of righteousness, it just reminds me that, um, you know, that the the the, the way that the gospels articulated today, um. Everyone seems to be trying to find a way to make the gospel, you know, in a sense, appealing and manageable for the culture, reasonable, rational, trying to make the gospel something that people can identify with. But the fact that the Spirit is convicting the world of righteousness, uh, you know, Sinclair Ferguson, you know, he points that out uh, in this book, where it really shows people the very thing that they lack, right? They lack the righteousness that God requires. And this is so important for us in our gospel articulation because all the other stuff, we can provide that for people or people can achieve that through techniques and through therapy and through you know, <laughs> you know, a, a therapeutic model or through personal meditation or whatever. People can achieve peace of mind, let's say. People can achieve emotional stability. People can achieve a certain financial or social status but what they can't achieve is righteousness. The very thing they cannot achieve, that is the very thing that the Spirit is convicting the world of. And just the fact that Jesus went on to say, you know, in the, the, um, in the, in the, in the phrase where for, I think is kind of even exegetically a little bit challenging, when he says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer. That's very interesting, right? Because it's like, what is the connection there? And Sinclair Ferguson, I thought, gave a very good uh, sort of interpretation, or at least an attempt to interpret what is the sort of the logical causal connection between the two. And he just talks about the fact that, you know, that um, I'll just read it here on page 38. He says, 
It is to these events in terms of the death, resurrection, and ascension that the Spirit will bear witness because they provide the divine vindication of Christ. And then he goes on to quote 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, where it says that Christ was vindicated by the Spirit, in or by the Spirit. And so it says, when the Spirit displays Christ's righteousness, he thereby displays man's guilt, and thus brings an abiding sense of conviction as a consequence. So it's almost like the fact that Jesus will ascend back to the Father is the ultimate statement that he provides the the righteousness, his uh, provision of righteousness was acceptable to God, and that's the very righteousness that man needs. And, um, And yeah, so, you know, we were... What does Romans say? Don't ask me where the verse is. (laughs) But Romans says, you know, he was raised for our justification. And so kind of a similar idea there, you see. But the Spirit is convicting the world of the very thing that the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is convicting them of, namely, that they need his righteousness or they're hopeless. Amen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Romans chapter 4 there and and what a what a massive hope that is for those for those of us that are in Christ. From beginning to end the righteousness is not it's an extranos. It's it's beyond us, it's outside mm-hmm. of us. It's a completely other righteousness. And I love and I highlighted and circled and marked it up in the book here the the divine the words the divine vindication of Christ. I needed that. I needed that, right? That's my hope of my salvation is the righteousness of Christ and the fact that he's there before the, the, his throne. He's there in the high courts of, of heaven, completely righteous, completely like he's ruling, reigning, great high priest. All those theological points get stacked on this that is the foundation of my hope which makes a works-based salvation such an abhorrent, you know, even thing to think about, that you can earn your place and your standing in his presence. That you could stand there and say, you know what, yeah, thank you, that was great, but I was good enough. Look what I did. Look what I accomplished. No, it's the righteousness of Christ um, that completely sets me free. Now, he says uh, conviction of judgment um, there in, in the close of concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world mm, is so judged as a, again, yeah. a weird statement. You know, what, what do you expound? Teach me, Emilio. What does that mean? <laughs> expound please. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think Sinclair leads us in the right direction by going to, in a sense, going to the arch, the arch nemesis of the, of, of God and the arch enemy of, of the church. And to show that, you know, again, the explanatory clause, because the ruler of this world has been judged, it, it, it shows that their judgment, this is, in a sense, a little bit of realized eschatology, or we could say semi-realized eschatology, because the de- if the devil's final judgment is certain, how much more certain is the final judgment of the sinner who belongs to the to the devil, who is under the sway and dominion of the devil, who's following in the footsteps of the devil, who will who will encounter the very same judgment as the devil if they do not fall under conviction of sin. And so if if the prototypical sinner uh I don't want to say par excellence, but if the greatest sinner of all, the devil, is all he already has a death sentence pronounced over him by the Spirit, <laughs> how much more should people fall under the, the weight of the conviction of the Spirit who's telling them, look, judgment is coming, and people know it. People know in hearts. I, I think it was Van Til at one point in his book, um, uh, Defense of the Faith, when he talks about man's conversion, he says that the Spirit convinces man of what he already knew to be true. And there's a, that real sense that people already know that they're that they're in trouble. They're, everyone has a conscience, right? Romans 1, right? They suppress it. They might deny it. They might act as if it's not true. But in their heart of hearts, they know they're in trouble with God. 
And so the Spirit comes to drive that message home by, as it were, taking out the arch nemesis of the church uh, and, uh, and, and proclaiming or pronouncing a judgment over him. And so I think that, that was really helpful. And I don't know when the last time I, we really used, I know in American culture, and just we tend to kind of, you know, the, the, the people tend to have a cartoonish view of the devil. And so it's almost like, mm-hmm. you know, bring up the devil and the doctrine of the devil to your own demise. <laughs> but when was the last time we drove home that kind of logic to people, you know, to show them like, look, you know that the devil is damned. And if you don't want to be damned along with him, you must repent. And so I hope that that, yeah. you know, I hope that that will be something we can start implementing more and more. I mean, I love what he, he said there. In, what middle page 38, he said, the death of Christ, which unbelieving men took to be the judgment of God on him, was in fact the judgment of their master and therefore a guarantee of their own impending doom. The ministry of the Spirit thus produces a total reversal, a conversion in our thinking. Instead of calling Christ in question, we discover that we are being called in question mm-hmm. by his Spirit. Right, he goes on. It is not Christ on the cross who is sorry, is not Christ who on the cross is declared guilty of sin, but I am declared guilty of sin. It is not Christ who is condemned, but I who am condemned. Right? That's that's the penalty that I deserve. That's the conviction that that is coming concerning judgment. This is impending. This is doom. This is reality. Um, and if he didn't spare his son, what makes you think you're going mm. to slide? Mm-hmm. You know, and and Kevin, you you hit on it a few minutes ago in the the Spurgeon quotes and the Owen quotes, but and and this has been the the topic this whole conversation of the necessity of of uh, sin, um, the convict sorry the necessity of conviction of sin. Um, you know, anything you want to add to uh, John chapter 16 that we've been talking about of, of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and, and springboarding on what you commented on a few minutes ago on, on the uh, necessity of conviction? No, I love that quote that you just read. I mean, I was looking at that as you were reading it, or just even talking a couple of minutes ago. I was like, man, that is just a phenomenal quote that, you know, obviously the ministry of spirit produces a total reversal. And, you know, you think of people okay who who is jesus you know what i don't believe in him you know and then all of a sudden they're convicted and they see christ for who he is and how many people have that that story or that testimony that that they were convicted of their sin before they may have mocked the lord they mocked christ and yet what ends up happening god opens their eyes he sovereignly regenerates them and that's the and they they come into obviously a conviction of sin they come into the conviction of i've sinned against the holy god i deserve his wrath i deserve his judgment but christ was the propitiation for my sin that that his death satisfied the wrath of god and now by faith alone in christ alone i can be forgiven and uh what a beautiful beautiful thing that is but you know as i as i mentioned just you know, a little bit ago, um, you know, as we a- I answered that first question, is conviction necessary? Absolutely. Now, again, is that, as Owen said, is that for some men by the gates of death and hell and by others, that's plain and easy unto them. And and again, I, uh, it's amazing just to see, and I love hearing um, just people's testimonies, how the Lord in his sovereign grace regenerated them. And again, you may hear someone who's at four years old on their on their parents' bedside, and you may hear somebody who, who again, um, lived a hard life, and yet God still in his mercy and his grace regenerated them. But, but conviction is absolutely necessary. And uh, Mike, I'm going to kind of bounce off the second point to you and I'd love to hear your thoughts on just uh, how much conviction is necessary. So could you talk about that second point of uh, uh, what Ferguson's talking about there? Yeah, I thought what a a brilliant question, first and foremost, a very pastoral question. 
And and at the same time, a question that's impossible to answer. Because he kind of answers it by giving it a non-answer. He says, the best answer is whatever depth and length of conviction will draw us to faith in Christ. Degrees of conviction will differ just as believers do themselves. Right? And there, there's no hard and fast rule of to the degree of conviction. And, and pastorally, I thought, I thought, what a brilliant question, the pastoral context of, of as Emilio pointed out, you know, in, in a church membership interview, you, you have a, a guy that has zero conviction. That's a problem. And I remember years ago, this is a long time ago, you know, I was, I was working with a guy that I would just describe as he had such a thin conscience that, that any, like, minute thing would so debilitate him into a spiral of depression is really what it was that that he had no faith really to stand upon the righteousness of Christ right he was almost so overwhelmed with conviction that he he never applied the theology of but you understand you stand before the high courts of heaven, you stand before before the King of kings and Lord of lords clothed in his righteousness. So get up, get at the master's table. That's where you belong, right? There's there's almost that like, if if is there an appropriate amount of time where I, I rip my clothes and, and, you know, throw mud all over myself? Like what, what, what is that? And it's just, there's no hard and fast answer. If conviction is absence, that's a problem. But if you also are so debilitated, that's a problem mm. as well, right? Put on the the theology of the righteousness of Christ, and praise God for that conversation we just had, um, that, that that conviction, that the purpose of it is to draw you into that right fellowship with him and to bring you there where there's fullness of joy, there's pleasures forevermore, and, and enjoying God's presence as, as a free man. Right, you have been set free for freedom. You've been set free, as Paul says there in Galatians. Right? It's, it's you don't you're not bound to that yoke of slavery anymore, and that should cause us to to stand up. So I thought I thought pastorally, what a great question. Um, you guys have anything you want to you want to add to that? Uh, you know, I'll probably just summarize what Thomas Watson said because obviously his opinion would be better than than ours. Uh, but, you know, he, uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson <laughs> quotes Thomas Watson and um, on the Lord's Prayer here, his book on the Lord's Prayer. But, you know, it's summed up in the very last sentence of Thomas Watson's quote when he says, be not more cruel to thyself than God would have thee. In other words, don't be, more, don't be harder on yourself, you modern vernacular here. Don't be hard, harder on yourself than God wants you to be. <laughs> so don't, you, there's no need right, for a person to fall under piles and piles of conviction just to try to, let's say, compare to the next guy, you know, or whatever. Um, the simple point of it is kind of like, you know, you guys remember John chapter 3, verse 8, where Jesus, and really verses uh, 7 and 8, where he compares the nature of regeneration to the wind that blows wherever it wants to, right? And so it is with everybody that is born of of God. So, you know, that's that's a good metaphor, too, because sometimes the wind blows so strong, especially here in Texas, you can get the wind blowing at 300 miles an hour, namely through an F5 tornado, okay? <laughs> Thankfully, we haven't seen any of those lately, although we had some pretty bad storms here the other day, eh, Kev? I think, Kevin, you had we worse did. storms than I did. <laughs> you, you oh, get, it was bad. Yeah, you guys had some bad storms bad. up there. <laughs> uh, but also, uh, you know, you can have a fierce hurricane-level kind of storm and the wind can blow so violently like it did in the life of the Apostle Paul. I would say that the, the, the wind blew violently in my life, right? Overnight, radical overnight conversion, you know. But for some, the wind might blow so gently that it may be indistinguishable. You may not even see the leaves moving on the tree. But the wind is blowing nonetheless. And... um I've heard so many different testimonies of how that has happened. You know, I've told the story numerous times, but I had a lady that uh, many years ago in Fort Worth when I was pastoring there said that she was attending the church, and she said for months and months and months, she said, I was coming and listening to the preaching, and she said, I couldn't understand anything you were saying. I, I didn't 
everything was over my head. I had no idea what you were talking about. And she said on one, on one uh, evening service, she said, in an instant, she said, I just understood. And she, she, she actually said that was the moment of her regeneration. And, you know, she wasn't, she didn't fall out of her pew, rolling on the ground, crying and weeping, you know, with ashes on her head, but it was a powerful move of the Spirit. And so I think we need to make that very clear to people, right? That the effect might differ, but the quality of what is happening does not differ. You know, you might have a radical manifestation of the Spirit's work, but the result is exactly the same. It's called regeneration. And so that's something we need to stress to people, lest we try to create some kind of two-tier spirituality. Well, you had a really violent conversion, but this person had a very kind of, you know, nominal kind of conversion. No, no, not at all. Every conversion is equally glorious because it is a work of the Spirit of God. And so I think that's important for us when we think about how much conviction is necessary. Sinclair Ferguson is right. As much, as much, uh, as much conviction as you need to put your faith in Christ. That's like people ask, well, how great is your faith? It's not about great faith. It's just about saving faith, right? Um, that kind of thing. So I thought that was a really good, uh, really good point that Watson is making here. Don't, don't expect, right, uh, more conviction <laughs> uh, than God has ordained basically for you. Uh, you know, I would say for those that didn't have a radical overnight conviction, I know you guys have probably encountered this, but that for a lot of people, when they don't have those kind of convictions or they don't have that kind of story of conviction, it might, it, it, it could tend to mess with people's assurance. And people could tend to wonder, am I, was I really saved? Because it wasn't like yours. I heard your testimony. I heard how awesome it was and radical it was. Well, you know what, guys? I know, I know I sit with two guys that can testify to this. We've heard a lot of radical supposed conversion stories of people that completely apostatized. And so we don't need mm -hmm. a radical conversion yep. story. We need an authentic conversion story. So, yep. yeah. Yeah, man. What a great, yeah, I was thinking in, in youth ministry, one of the most common things to do to draw a crowd is find some bro that was a gang member, you know, what whatever kind of radical, like, you know, to the gutter most almost and put him in front of a youth group and share his testimony. It's this big, but then you got the kid that's grown up faithfully in the church, attending church, you know, believed in Christ his whole life. He can't point to a specific moment of this was the moment, you know, and that, that kid feels like a second class because, well, I guess maybe to have a testimony, you know, I need to go do all those things. Well, it, your testimony is not the gospel. Right, Christ. Christ is the gospel. Christ is the focal point of the gospel, and it is just a miracle that the the kid that grew up in in you know uh, the church and and was taught from a young age that got born again as it is the the gang member from from Watts, you know that that gets born again. Christ did a miracle in both of those events because he's a great savior. Yep. I would always say when I was doing high school and college ministry, obviously you got kids that were growing up in the church and. Um, you know, and uh, obviously, Mike, you, you hit that point, too, is the fact of someone that was saved at a young age. They've just, you know, they had loving Christian parents. They heard the gospel. Um, they believed at a young age and they looked at their life and they're like, well, am I really saved? There was a messing with the assurance of salvation because I didn't have this quote unquote radical testimony. And this is where I would say this, this is when people say, does theology matter? Yes, it matters. Because the reality of the situation is you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And that's what I would tell everybody. I would say, listen, you are dead. You know what? You are dead at four years old, five years old, six year olds, whenever God raised you from the dead. And the reality is this, and I would say you should be praising and worshiping the Lord. First of all, God's not obligated to save anyone, but the fact that he would regenerate you as a young child and enable you to live for his glory all of your days that you know that you're conscious, what a, an incredible testimony that is. Amen. Not the guy that's, 
that's 50 that's wasted half his life just in sin. But the fact of the matter is, I'm like, dude, you got saved at five, six years old, and now you can live for the glory of God. And he was kind enough and gracious enough and merciful enough to open your eyes at that age. Praise the Lord. You should be so thankful. And so I would, obviously, Mike, you've dealt with that being in youth ministry, but that is something that I, I commonly talk to kids about and, um, and let them know, like, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and that your your regeneration at a young age is just as miraculous as the 50-year-old that obviously was in jail and got, got saved. It is a sovereign work of Almighty God. Amen. And Emilio, yep. in, in, you know, in closing, he, he finishes with this final question, what is the purpose of conviction? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what a great way to close. And he talks about humility and thankfulness. And, and just in closing, kind of just comment on, on that attitude that conviction should lead us towards. Yeah, well, when I think about what is the purpose of conviction, um, even, bef- even before we get to some of the maybe results of conviction— Right, which the result would to me would be some of these attitudes, but but for certain the purpose of conviction is so that sinners would be awakened to the fact that they are not right with God, um, as Van Til would say, we are all wrong with God, <laughs> right? And man is in a in a religious radical religious dilemma. Uh, Man is in a radical spiritual dilemma, and he can in no way whatsoever alleviate himself from this dilemma. There's nothing that he or she can do to remedy that dilemma. So the purpose of conviction is to cause you to to awaken to that crisis, and it's also to cause you to relinquish your sin and to relinquish your life, as it were, and in, and in that sense, very closely connected to repentance, right? And so conviction is for the purpose of leading people to repentance. Now, as, you know, he goes on to talk about what follows after this conviction of sin, he talks about humility and thankfulness. And I would like to add a third to that. I would like to add the, the word fear, because I think that what conviction of the Spirit does is it should grip you with the fear of the Lord, and as the psalmist declares, the fear of the Lord is pure. And so when the conviction of the Spirit has transpired in a person's life, it humbles you to the dust, because you are reminded that you are, as Sinclair Ferguson says, you are conscious that you are guilty and that you have been pardoned, Kevin, exactly what you were talking about earlier. I can't believe that God actually had grace and mercy and lavished his love upon you, and that you should be utterly humbled to the dust uh, in, in, in the reality of that. And of course, thankfulness, we should be utterly grateful that God awakened us to our sin, that God was gracious enough not just to convict us, but to use that very conviction in order to set us on the path where we can now grow in sanctification. He says here on page 41, I should just quote him because he says it so well, but he says, thankfulness grows best in the seedbed of conviction, just as some plants must be placed in the soil in the winter if they are to flower in the summer. And so it's like, it may not look, it may not look right to us, it may not feel good to us at the moment, but that conviction of sin is the way that God is going to cause the growth of his people in sanctification. So I just think those different aspects uh, of the Spirit's work, those results and those effects of conviction are so important, so indispensable. So I just think this is a really, really important chapter in order to, you know, recently here, guys, I've been working on uh, I've been working on a project. I think I told you about this, but it's based on this uh, based on this little uh, booklet that is a lecture of David Wells, uh, and it's entitled uh, "The Bleeding of the Evangelical Church." But you know, I'm writing on this because the the, the moralistic therapeutic model for discipleship and Christianity 
it is so incredibly pervasive all around. It may not, and I don't know about you guys, but I, the way I would look at it is like you and I, you know, the three of us, we're going to try to surround ourselves with all kinds of sound theology. So sound preaching, sound. So all the ministries and folks that we listen to are typically going to be sound. But honestly, if if we have a much more national or even global view, and I know you do, you understand that we represent a very small minority of people in terms of Christendom, but that the vast majority, let's say, of evangelicalism is still inundated in this moralistic, therapeutic deism that Michael Horton, you know, so classically exposed. And um, and so just this idea that that man gets to define their needs. It's kind of like this. When the Spirit comes, let's say, go back to John 16, the modern church would have said something totally different than what, John, than what Jesus says in John. They would have said something, when the Spirit comes, he's going to come and give you joy and peace, <laughs> right? And lo- But they would not have started there talking about the conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that's because the Spirit is going to come in to do what we really need. And what we really need has nothing to do with the felt needs that we think so highly of in our lives, our social status, our financial status, our emotional, psychological, and mental well-being. I mean, our whole culture right now, you can hardly watch a TV, a television program or surf the internet without getting something about mental wellness, something about how to make yourself more emotionally stable. And yet none of that constitutes man's greatest needs. Man's greatest needs revolve around sin, righteousness, and judgment. And therefore, that is why the Spirit of God comes to, in a sense, supplement the preaching of the, of the church in its, in its mission uh, to fulfill the Great Commission. So those are my kind of my closing thoughts, final thoughts. Should I close this out? Or you Amen. guys want to say something else? Amen. <laughs> any, any? No, that was That, that was, was perfect. Okay, we'll leave it at perfection then. so great talking to you guys again man this was a good one uh the next chapter of course is going to be on regeneration and the new birth so i'm really looking forward to that one that's going to be a really good one but guys thanks so much to everybody listening out there thank you for tuning in to another episode christ and kingdom and also make sure and check out our youtube channel that has been fired back up here recently red grace live where myself and my producer michael whitehead we are producing weekly content now that is, uh, that is uh, uh, released live every Sunday at 7 o'clock, 7 p.m. So make sure and catch those episodes if you can. Make sure and like, subscribe, and share all this content. God bless you guys. Till next time.